So what happens when sex is primarily a consumer good in a society? When sex and nakedness and bodies become commodities, consumer transactions, what happens? Dehumanization, objectification, and use and abuse and manipulation, and on and on. Sex is God's invention. It's his good gift to us. And it is a covenant good in the context of marriage intended to be primarily about giving, not just receiving. Giving, not taking. So the world and the Bible have drastically different visions of sex and sexuality. That's always been the case, but certainly in recent years in the United States, we've seen you know, some drastic steps where that divergence is getting farther and farther apart. So <clears throat> as we head into the book of Ephesians here, remember that Paul is addressing regularly both the terrestrial kind of rubber meets the road, earthly level of our lives, as well as the cosmic level, right? Considered that a few weeks back. So if you flip to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, you see kind of the big picture theme, overarching theme of the book. If I can get there here. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. So Paul writes <clears throat> that all this grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven, cosmic, and things on earth, the terrestrial. So... <clears throat> He then goes to chapter 2, and we see that all of us, by nature, were dead in trespasses and sins, right? That's kind of the earthly level. We, we sin. We're dead in our sins. We walk in that way. But we were following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air. So there's this cosmic thing going on, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. But by God's grace, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, what happened was you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. So he's then calling us as Christians to walk in a manner worthy of that calling in the way that we learned Christ. So 4.17 says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the nations do, because you're a new creation. You've been made alive, reborn, made new. The old is gone, the new has come. So walk in this newness of life. That's who you are. There's two ways to walk. The path of the world, the other path is following Jesus in the school of faith. So 
the old self, fallen self, that's who you were in Adam. So now in Christ, we put on this new life. We put off the old, we put on the new. So we have this old and new, put off, put on language at the end of chapter 4. And then last week we looked at 425 to 5.2, which unpacks a little bit more, zooms in and gets more specific and concrete what it looks like to put off the old self and put on the new. And as we do this, we display to the world, certainly, the greatness of our Savior, but also our lives make a cosmic declaration to the principalities and powers that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all. And everything is ultimately going to find its appropriate fitting place under his lordship. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the church is like the vanguard of the new creation because we gladly bow the knee now. So we take our marching orders from King Jesus and our obedience and our new life, our walking in a manner worthy as the vanguard of everything being made new says to the principalities and powers, it's a cosmic declaration, it puts them on notice that their days are numbered. They can war against God and his people, but their days are numbered. One day, everything is going to be united. Things in heaven, things on earth, under the headship of Christ when he returns and sets everything to rights. So our obedience, your, your most mundane, loving Walking in love, like it says, like in chapter 5, verse 1, like when you imitate God and love rather than selfishly take, you are showing the world and the principalities and powers who is Lord. You are not going to take your marching orders from the evil one. You're not going to follow the prince of the power of the air. Nope. You're following King Jesus. So this morning, put it in that framework. And how we live out our sexuality has massive implications, okay? So it certainly has massive implications on the terrestrial level, but also we will either say with our sexuality, Satan is Lord, and we'll just follow like a lemming in the ways of this world, or Jesus is Lord. And we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received in him. So that is at the center of this passage. It, it's a little bit broader than sexuality, but certainly sexuality is at the center. Okay? So <clears throat> if we look around in the world, and sadly also many times in the church, Satan is winning in the realm of sexuality, isn't it? Are we okay with that? Like, are you okay with that? Do we want to say with our lips, Jesus is Lord, and then in the privacy of our browser or in the privacy of our minds or in our bedrooms, follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience? I hope not. This is a call this morning to walk in the light. 
And it's a call to walk first in love. So point number one, walk in love. A little bit of review because five, one to two is like a heading over what follows in chapter five. So even though we looked at these verses last week, we'll just hit them quickly so that you can see that it's kind of like a hinge between last week's section and this week's section. So first point, walk in love, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it's this hinge concluding what came before and then serving as a heading over what's to follow. And these verses make it clear that it's the love of God, the grace of God that is the motive and the power to obey the commands that follow. We can love because he first loved us. We can obey because we are beloved children that have been brought into relationship with God. Given the Holy Spirit, we are empowered by grace to actually walk in a manner worthy. This is not bootstraps religion. This is grace-based religion, okay? This is obedience empowered by grace and by the love of God. So what follows is this clear contrast that's set up between loving self-control and self-sacrifice, like these two verses we just read, and on the other hand, lustful or covetous self-indulgence. So there's two ways to walk, as we've seen in the last two weeks. So this is a call to walk in the light. It's a call to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's a call to put off lust and be thankful. Point number two, verses three and four. So walk in love as Christ loved us, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So if you're going to walk in love, you can't be governed by lust. So we have to put off, we have to turn away from sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. So the first term, it's actually one term in Greek, sexual immorality, it's the word porneia, okay? So maybe you hear, we we get our word pornography from that word, okay? So it often refers, when this word is used, it often refers to fornication, okay, which is an older word that refers to premarital sex or sex outside of marriage. It can also be used as kind of like a junk drawer Term, which includes all manner of deviations from God's design, so it can include adultery, although there's a separate Greek word for adultery, um, visiting a prostitute, homosexuality, and even bestiality in the Old Testament. This word can refer to those things. So sexual immorality, kind of a broad term, but usually focusing on premarital sex. All impurity refers to unrestrained sexual behavior, kind of, again, fairly broad term. Sometimes it's combined with sexual immorality, and together, basically, it just is just covering the basis, (laughs) like every kind of sexual sin. Then Paul moves inward, and he addresses our hearts, okay? Not just behavior, but the heart of sexual sin is covetousness, greed, What is covetousness but 
sinfully desiring something that does not belong to you. It's an insatiable desire for more. So think of a parallel here. Is, it, is there anything wrong with making money? No, okay. But if your desire to make money is selfish, if it's all about you, or if you're addicted to it, like you have to have money and you'll become a workaholic, you'll cut corners, you'll sacrifice your family, you'll trample on people in order to get it, then it's a problem. Or if you're always thinking about it, fantasizing how much you can make, you know, what it could buy, you know, all it just consumes you, then it's a problem. It's become an idol, right? So is there anything wrong with making money? Is there anything wrong with making love? In the context of marriage, no. We are sexual beings. God has given us these desires. It's not wrong to want to be married and enjoy sexual intimacy with your husband or wife. The Bible, God himself, again, this is his invention, his idea. He's not against sexual desire. Just think about Genesis 2 and what's going on there. Proverbs 5. It's like some really, like, God's not prudish. He's not ashamed to talk about these things. He looks us in the eye and inspires the Song of Songs, which is a celebration of marital love that is like, whoa. You know, there's euphemism, but it is, whoa. And that's a good thing. But, just like with money, if your desire for it is selfish, if it's all about you, greed, covetousness, what is porn and masturbation if not selfish and all about you? Or if you're addicted to it, you have to have it, even if it's not yours to have, and you'll consume porn or objectify people. Or if you're fantasizing about it, just always thinking about it, then sex has become an idol. And you see what God, what Paul says down in verse 5. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, do you see that parallel with verse 3? But sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not be named. Verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater. Huh. What was the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? First commandment. Have no other gods. What's the last commandment? Do not covet. First and last. So, hmm, are they related? Like, is all covetousness idolatry? Yes, because something or someone else has taken the first place. No wonder the law boils down to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to unpack it into 10 laws, then you have the 10 commandments. But if you want to boil it down to one law, two sides of the same coin, it's worship God alone. Love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor and coveting or lusting after your neighbor or coveting something your neighbor has is the opposite of love. So, will lust be enthroned in our hearts or will Jesus be enthroned 
right? So what are we going to say with our lives? Jesus is Lord. Or are we going to keep following the prince of the power of the air? Will we worship and serve the creator or created things? Now, we passed over verse 4, at least the end of it there. Well, no, I guess the whole thing. So (laughs) look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So immorality, impurity, covetousness that he's listed in verse 3, those things go public sometimes through the way that we speak. The most obvious example would be locker room talk, right? So Paul is saying that we've got to put off and flee from sexual immorality. But even beyond that, we shouldn't even name it. What what does that mean? Like, if you take it too literalistically, Paul violated his own principle because he just named it. So what do you mean, Paul? Like, what's going on? What he's saying is we mustn't entertain and ponder and talk about sexual immorality in ways that normalizes it as if it's no big deal to cheapen and degrade this precious gift that God has given. That is not proper among saints. It's out of place among the beloved children of God. So Paul uses this language, not proper and out of place. That might just be normal if you're older (coughs) and you've read the Bible for a long time. If you're younger, how does that strike you? Does it strike you as repressive or prudish? You know, like, it's not proper. It's out of place. You know, like wagging the finger. No. So what does this mean? Like, what's the application? Well, I was trying to think about how to explain this, and maybe the simplest and clearest way to do so is something like this. I hate the fact that because I didn't heed this warning as a teenager, grew up in the church, rebelled against it all, you know, really just dove in the deep end um, of what the world had to offer toward the end of my high school years. And there was all kinds of sexual sin. So I didn't heed this warning as a teenager, and there is double entendre that comes to mind in my mind when other people are talking about innocent things. Has that ever happened to you? I hate that. (laughs) And I'm not going to give any examples, right? Because I'm going to heed what Paul says here. But you know what I'm talking about. Double entendre, vulgarity, crass jokes. Again, it's kind of obvious among schoolboys or whatever, but and and even yesterday I'm at uh, Lowe's and I had to pick up something there. And I'm coming out of the, the place and about to get in my car, and there's these two guys that are working the carts, you know, and they're teenagers. And two girls, young girls, go to get in their car. And, you know, it's just how many times? This happens all the time, everywhere. They're talking. I couldn't hear what they're saying, but it's obvious what they're saying. And as these girls get in the car, the one kid is just kind of staring and making... It, it's just... It's so ugly, but is that happening in your mind, my mind? That's not okay. So do we want to feed our minds with perversion and the degradation of sexuality? Or do we need to cut off that flow? Do we want our minds to slip easily into the gutter? 
Or do we want to walk with dignity and self-control on the path of love and honor toward other image bearers? So if we don't, we will cheapen this incredibly powerful and precious gift, just like the world is doing, just left, right, and center. And, I mean, you don't have to, you have to live under a rock to not see how sexuality is cheapened and degraded and impersonalized and industrialized and people made in his image are objectified and used and abused all over the place. So if you were here last week, remember I gave the image from the prodigal son story, this, this language of putting off and putting on. Imagine the prodigal son taking his pigsty clothes you know, that he came home in and his father put the best robe on him. And you can imagine if he goes to that party, he's going he's gonna to throw away those pigsty clothes and he's going to get cleaned up and he's going to wear that robe that his father's given him. So think about when we give way to sexual temptation, it's like putting the pigsty clothes back on. Allowing these vices to gain a foothold in our hearts is like just putting the stinky clothes back on. But that's not who we are anymore, right? We're the beloved sons and daughters of the Father, and he's clothed us in his best robe, the righteousness of Christ. And we need to continue to put off the old, the old life, the old way of life, and put on the new. We can't just have a negative strategy. Yes, we have to, we have to die to these things and put them off, but we also need to put on the new. So, how many, have, how many of you have a dog? Okay. If your dog has something of yours that you, that, that that dog really likes and you wish that that dog really didn't like it and it's got it in its mouth and it's one of those stubborn dogs that if you try to yank it, it's going to just be that much, you know, dig in that much more. How are you going to get that thing to let go of that shoe or whatever? You can fight with it or, and you know, yeah, sometimes that works. What if you throw down a bone with some meat on it? So Thomas Chalmers talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. <laughs> so not just put off, like, come on, put off, put off, put off. Put on. Like, if, if, we, if we're just kind of nibbling at this two-day-old McDonald's hamburger, what if there's a piping hot filet mignon on the plate? What are you going to do with that McDonald's hamburger? Get rid of it. So not just a negative strategy, but also a positive strategy. And that's where this thing goes in verse 4. Instead of lust and covetousness and dirty minds and speech, gratitude. Just think about it. Thanksgiving is incompatible with lust and covetousness. Can those two things, like, cohabitate in your heart at the same time? No. One is self-centered, the other is God-centered. So putting off, like why do we go after these things? It's because we, we, we believe the oldest lie in the book, that God's holding out on us, that if we really trust and follow him, we're gonna die, we're gonna suffer, we're gonna lack, 
And that's a lie from the pit of hell. God's not a killjoy. He is after our deepest joy. So, ah, put that off and consider all the grace that is yours in Christ. Go back to Ephesians 1, 2, 3, where there is every spiritual blessing that we've been blessed with. I mean, this is a spiritual discipline. Do you wake up in the morning just like bubbling over with thanksgiving? I don't. (laughs) But we don't have to listen to our sinful selves. We can preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of all that is ours in Christ so that our hearts are filled with gratitude and joy, then we're not going to be suckers for the temptation when it hits that day. If you're empty and you face that temptation, you're likely to fall. If you're full and you hit that temptation, you're going to be enabled to resist. So, there are you know, direct strategies against lust and impurity, gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, you know, be ruthless. Yes, all of that. But also there's indirect but powerful strategies for purity and holiness and walking in a manner worthy, and growing in gratitude is one of those. It's like preventative medicine. Lust can't cohabit with thankfulness in the human heart. One's got to go. So lust is hungry and covetous and dissatisfied and ungrateful by its very nature. But we have every reason to be grateful to God for his grace, every spiritual blessing that he's given us in Christ. And a thankful heart can't be a lustful heart. So give thanks for the sake of purity. So, Let me see here. <laughs> Old time management. Um, so this is, l- let me just say that I know this is not easy. And maybe I can just stop right here and say, I don't know where you are personally, but there is difficulty on the road of following Jesus, walking in a manner worthy, for everyone. So if you are single and you want to be married, is it hard to be thankful? And is it easy to be covetous? Yes. But is there grace enough to be thankful and to follow Jesus and walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Yes. If you struggle with same-sex attraction and desires, the church hasn't done very well with this in the past. We need to do better with this. If that is your struggle, isn't it easy? It's not gonna, or let me say, it's not going to be easy to be grateful. Like, God, why? why? I didn't ask for this. Is there grace on that road? So there is actually a call for everyone 
no matter what the struggle is, all of us have to pay a cost to follow Jesus. We all need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Maybe you're in a marriage where things aren't healthy. Maybe they're broken. Maybe it's painful. Maybe particularly in the realm of intimacy. And it would be hard to be grateful and easy to be covetous. We can fix our eyes on Jesus and realize that every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours in Christ and there is grace to run the race that's set before us. It might not be the race that we would pick for ourselves, but it's the race that God has chosen for us and he will meet us there and give us grace to run faithfully, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So let me be clear. Just, we, we need, we're going to need to be incredibly clear on these things now and in the years to come. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Okay? Marriage is a whole life, lifelong covenantal union between a man and a woman. And we live in a day and culture where sexual freedom is seen more as more of a fundamental right than religious freedom. Okay? Like, there may be some tough days for the, for the church ahead if we stay faithful to what the Bible says. So we can't cave in the face of that pressure, but also we need to realize that everybody has got sexual sin, and so we need to be gracious and willing to love and care for people with any kind of struggle. Okay, so I am so thankful for the example of John Stott. I'll quote him in a minute. He lived to be 90 and he was never married. And he was fully human, just like Jesus, who never married, was fully human. So singleness is not second-class citizenry in the kingdom of God, and there is grace for the challenges and the difficulties on that path. And let me say that someone like John Stott can speak before me. It'd be you know, easy for you to say. I'm so thankful for Sam Albury. Do you know this name? So he is a writer, and he is a pastor in the Nashville area. So he's dealt with same-sex attraction as long as he can remember. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? He's single and celibate. He is following Jesus, denying himself, take up, taking up his cross and following Jesus, crucifying those desires, and seeking the Lord to give him grace to trust him on that path. So for some people, the Lord may change those desires. For others, it may be a battle until the day they die. But there's grace for that path, and I'm thankful for Sam Albury's example. I'd encourage you to look him up and, you know, listen to some sermons or read a book. Or Jackie Hill Perry. She wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God. And now she's married with children. So she's married, Sam Albury's not. You know, some people that struggle with drug addiction, let's say, they become a Christian and boom, they're like set free and they never struggle again with it. Other people, it is a fight until the day they die. And sometimes that happens with sexual sin and temptation as well. The race set before you.
but there is grace for that race. I could multiply examples. So everyone who follows Jesus is going to need to deny himself, herself, take up their cross and follow Jesus. The cost looks different, different life situations, but there's a cost for all of us. And this takes daily, hourly vigilance in our world where just everything is sexualized. And there's just so much objectification. And porn is available 24-7 on your phone with a few taps. And we are also spring-loaded to self-pity and grumbling and complaining and coveting and envy. And you see, we're set up to fall in the face of that temptation. So I quoted this last week, but John Stott says this. What is the theme which has run right through chapter 4 and spilled into chapter 5? The theme is the integration of Christian experience, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. They emphasize that being, thought, and action belong together and must never be separated. For what we are governs how we think. I, I quoted this last week, but it's worth repeating. And how we think determines how we act. We are God's new society, a people who have put off the old life and put on the new. We need to recall this by the daily renewal of our minds, remembering how we learned Christ as the truth is in Jesus, like it says in 420, and thinking Christianly about ourselves and our new status. Then we must actively cultivate a Christian life. And then this, for holiness or a worthy walk, you could say, is not a condition into which we drift. We are not passive spectators of a sanctification God works in us. On the contrary, we have purposefully to put away from us all conduct that is incompatible with our new life in Christ and to put on a lifestyle compatible with it. So, brothers and sisters, let's walk in love, not lust. Let's put off all sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Let's not speak about it or joke about God's gift of sexuality in ways that degrade and cheapen it. And let's cultivate a grateful heart. Let there be thanksgiving. But there's also other practical implications. I'll just list them here, and I'm going to have to skip ahead. So don't pay attention, partner, or take part. So look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So first thing is, don't pay attention to the lies. And our culture is full of them on these things. We need to take our cues from God as far as his design for this gift that he has given to us. How he has made us. So let, us, let no one deceive you with empty words. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. And then third, down in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Okay, so those are the three prohibitions. And I think for time here, I'm just gonna move on to the why. Okay, this is really sobering stuff. Verses 5 and 6. Sexuality is eternally significant, Okay. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. Or verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the covetousness, the idolatry, 
The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So these warnings are sobering, but they're grace. They're grace so that you don't go that path, but instead go the path of life following Jesus. So why should Christians wholeheartedly embrace the biblical sexual ethic? It certainly goes against the grain of our culture. It goes against the grain of our our sinful nature. It's not going to be easy. But it is eternally dangerous to toy with sexual sin. So listen, I don't know if there's anybody in here that's just been living a double life, hiding stuff and just never, like, never been willing to bring it out into the light. Listen, you may get away with your addiction, your hidden sins or habits, an adulterous affair, porn addiction. In this life, you may get away with it, but you cannot fool God. If you are a slave to porn, living a double life, if you're hiding it, your soul is in danger. God sees, he knows, he will be the one to judge you, not your spouse or friends or Christian brothers or sisters that may never find out. So John Stott, again, he says it well, assurance of salvation is neither a synonym nor an excuse for presumption. And if we should fall into a life of greedy immorality, we would be supplying clear evidence that we are, after all, idolaters, not worshipers of God, disobedient people instead of obedient, and so the heirs, not of heaven, but of hell. The apostle gives us a solemn warning. We shall be wise to heed it. Now, we, we can't mute that. That's the clear implication of this text. But does not mean that genuine Christians won't battle with temptation or give in to temptation. So Stott again says this, the immoral or impure person envisaged here is one who has given himself up without shame or penitence to this way of life. One who is covetous in the sense already defined, namely sexually greedy, lust has become an idolatrous obsession. That person will have no share in the perfect kingdom of God. I love this quote by William Arnault. Quoted it, it's been years, but maybe you remember this one. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man or woman is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So we've got to make war. We've got to battle against this temptation and cast that off and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the concluding call is to walk in the light as children of light. Look at it there in verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then down in verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. So you once were darkness, Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, but now you're light in the Lord, in Christ. You're in Christ. You're united to him. So not only were you rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, but you also became light. 
So light is not just your realm if you're a Christian. It's your identity. You are light in the Lord. In union with Christ, who is the light of the world, we are the light of the world. So Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and then he said to us in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. So brothers and sisters, let's throw off the filthy pigsty clothes and remember who we are. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You've been accepted and forgiven and cleansed and adopted. You've been given the radiant robes of righteousness in Christ. So let's take no part in the works of darkness. Instead, our lives will shine the light on those things and expose them for what they are. So J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of 5.13 says, It is possible, after all it happened to you, for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light also. Do you see that in verse 13? When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. What does that mean? It's another way of saying, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Our light as it shines is not only going to expose darkness, but by God's grace, he's going to use us as light to save some so that they come into the light and give glory to God. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray and then we're going to sing Christ, our only hope in life and death. Lord, this is a sobering passage, but you are warning us and exhorting us for our good and the good of others that you want to reach and shine on through us. So, Lord, please help us to walk in the light. If anyone is afraid right now and they're thinking, they're convicted, and they're thinking, weighing, counting the cost right now, even whether or not they need to confess and stop hiding, would you please give them courage and strength? Remind them of your character. Remind, remind them of your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remind them of your character and your goodness and your willingness and ability to free and heal and cleanse and give strength to walk in newness of life. Lord, help all of us to walk in a manner worthy putting off and putting on that we may shine with the light of our Savior who is the light of the world. In his name, amen.